I'm not going to break open the word for us tonight. Uh, that, that goes uh, to our friend Rue Sen. And I met Rue, Melissa and I met Rue in New York City, Upper West Side, um, at Redeemer um, Church there. And we were part of an organization called City to City. We've re received a lot of our church planning training through City to City and have been a part of a cohort of City to City here in Southern California of uh, about 10 pastors. Those cohorts have uh, increased here in Southern California of other pastors, very diverse group of people, which is really encouraging. It looked very Caucasian when we first came. So it's a great work of God's spirit that's happening here just through that organization in Southern California. Uh, Rue left city to city. Um, he had been doing a lot of work in India, um, doing work with the fastest growing church in the world. Um, Rue has literally seen and been partners with um, hundreds of new churches uh, all throughout India, but he's a part of a new work called Multiply Now um, because the church in India is a place, especially a gospel-centered church, is in a place where um, the, the, the native leaders there are leading and being catalysts for that movement. And so Rue was, uh, in his own words, unneeded. But he's working on a place right now in terms of church plan. Do some of this where um, he is facilitating those types of church plants and a catalyst to church plants in a very difficult areas, urban areas in the Middle East. Um, if uh, one of the things that um, Michael and Richard, there are Bridges pastors and I have talked about is, um, how do you disciple people in, um, in good news dynamics um, without programatizing it without assuming people are mechanical robots and just can be put through a blender of um, a program. And so Rue has been teaching us um, and really coaching us in a sense of how do you disciple people and persons, not in a program, but those dynamics so that all of us are part of a gospel mission. Um, and so that's, he's spent time um, really from the beginning of this year. Um, he's going to continue to come back. He's based in North Carolina right now. Um, he's going to freak you out a little bit because he's this, like, football player. Um, but um, he's, he's Indian-American, and um, he talks with a slow, sweet North Carolina drawl that, you, that will captivate you, I'm sure. Um, if, if you've spent any time with Rue, and I just want to say this, is there's a, a twinkle in his eye and a lightness and a joy. And that comes from, uh, not from studying really hard, not from trying really hard to be a good person, but really just simply knowing his Savior in a really deep, sweet way. So I'm glad that Rue's going to um, speak to us from God's word. He's going to be preaching from Matthew 28. And so um, I'm going to read a portion of Matthew 28 for us. I've said this before, but um, our liturgical training, right? Litur liturgy just means the work of the people. What do, what do people do in worship? And so at the end of the reading, I'm going to say this is, the word of the God, uh, this is the word of God. And we all respond by saying, thanks be to God. So from Matthew 28, verses 18, all authority in heaven. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, bro. I'm not that tall. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, it is a pleasure to be with you. Uh, when I planted my first church in 2002 in Chapel Hill, I didn't know what I was doing, but I did preach in shorts. And so to be in L.A. preaching in shorts again, I cannot tell you how exciting that is. <laughs> so I know, like, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I have found my people. <laughs> so I just didn't come to L.A. early enough. So anyways, uh, it is a pleasure to be with you, and I am a big fan of your pastor. So it's been fun to get to know you. And and just to just see his heart, and so to be able to partner together and be friends, and to see what God can do in LA together is just a blast. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I'm going to pray for us and dive in, uh, but I just want to say something real quick. It's a little scary when a pastor gets up to preach on Matthew 28, 18 through 20, isn't it? Aren't some of you with a little fear and trepidation going, oh man, He's going to beat the crap out of us. He's going to be really mean. He's going to be really pressure-filled. It's going to be hard and heavy, and I'm going to feel guilty. It's not what's going to happen. Okay, That's not what's going to happen. But this is part of the bread and butter of Christianity. So I think for all of us right now, we're going to have some moments where like, ouch. But it's not because I'm going to be saying anything particularly all that new or provocative. It's just, you know, there's some things that are just like, oh, yeah. This is, you find this message the gospel drives us to. And so uh, if you find this message particularly challenging, you're just joining me and Tim and others and just trying to let the gospel work itself out in your life. So with that, let me pray and we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful to be under your word. We're so grateful to be under your care and love we're grateful that right now you're singing over us. We're grateful right now your spirit's inside of us interceding on our behalf. And we just want to beg you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to make the word come alive, um, to, to help us by your spirit be changed, provoked, but mostly just at home in your grace, Lord Jesus. Lord, please do that. We pray this in your blessed name. Amen. In 1533, some cool stuff was happening around the world. There's this maverick in Germany named Martin Luther, and he's like writing things and nailing them to walls and talking about grace in new sort of ways, and all sorts of people around Europe are discovering in a fresh new way the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're like, wow, this grace stuff's amazing. Jesus really does love me like this? You mean he really does forgive all my past sins and present sins and future sins? You mean he makes me beautiful and righteous, meaning like fully satisfied before my Father in heaven, and I have to do anything? Yes, it was just going crazy all over the place. And in France during that time, you know, if you were trying to like figure out what this Martin Luther guy was talking about and rediscover the grace of God, it was kind of illegal. They didn't like it very much. So there's all these secret meetings happening all over France at this point. And this young lawyer named John Calvin was going to these secret meetings because he could not stop thinking about what this radical German guy was saying about the grace of God. And what he quickly discovered at these secret meetings that he'd go to is that grace of God was for him. 
and it radically changed his life. So much so that he didn't pursue his law degree and he didn't pursue the priesthood. He decided to start traveling. Doing see this, well, to see that gospel preached everywhere possible. See, this, what we see in this young lawyer, John Calvin, is what we see in the Bible over and over and over. When you discover the gospel, you give it away. When there's gospel discovery, there's gospel agency. When you enjoy the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're discovering it in fresh new ways, when the love of God overwhelms you and you just don't know what to do with it, what it does is it just spills out in your life. And just like your favorite pair of shoes you love to brag about or your favorite restaurant you like to share, you can't help but have the, just the grace of God ooze out of you. Fast forward, poor John Calvin, he kept trying to not get stuck in Geneva, but he kept getting stuck in Geneva. See, Geneva is one of these few cities in the world that was like a refuge for the rest of Europe. That if you were discovering the grace of Jesus Christ and you were not part of the established church of that time and you wanted a religious freedom, you could go to Geneva to worship Jesus and just unpack what the grace of God meant for you. So uh, he kept trying to leave to do other things, but we're like, no, John, you got to stay here and you got to help us figure this out. And he's like, okay. So on two different occasions, he got out only to go right back to him. So since he was there, he's like, okay, I'm going to preach five times a week so everyone can hear the gospel. Can you imagine preaching five times a week? I feel lazy even just talking about John Calvin preaching five times a week. But anyways, and half that time he was preaching in French. And so week after week, all these French leaders were just listening to him unpack the manifold wisdom of God, unpack the grace of Jesus, unpack what we have in Christ. And one after another were like, this is amazing. I got to go back home and tell my friends. I got to tell my uncles and aunties. Everyone needs to know about this Jesus that loves like this. And so one after another, these French men were just coming to John's house and going, John, I got to go back. And John's like, okay. So he, he brought them around his kitchen table, five leaders in 1555. He's like, all right, I'll train you to be a church planner. And so he, he had a little, his own little secret meeting in Geneva. He's training these five French leaders and he sent them out martyred for their faith. By 1559, he had sent out a hundred leaders. Many of them were martyred for their faith. But as they discovered the grace of Lord Jesus Christ, they became agents of it. All they wanted to do is make and mature, multiply churches and leaders wherever they could. And by 1562, the conservative estimate is those hundreds of leaders he sent out turned out to 2,000 house churches. Now, sadly, Calvin passed away in 1564, so he never saw the fruit of his preaching and his kitchen table training, but conservative estimates is 2 million people came to Christ, 10% of the population of France. You know what started all that? It's not so much John Calvin, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. As people discovered the grace of God by his teaching, they, they were compelled by it to go to their friends and their family and their communities, and they're like, who cares what the consequences are? People need to hear this. Don't you want to be a part of something like that? Could we again be a part of something like that? Gospel discovery leads to gospel agency. This is what we're going to briefly do this afternoon. We're going to look at three questions. What is gospel agency? Why is gospel agency so rare, sadly? And how do we unlock gospel agency? So what is it? Why is it so rare? How do we unlock it? So what is gospel agency? I'm going to read the passage one more time. It's really long, right? So I'm just, just going to just read it really slow again. I just want to let it pour over us. And then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority in heaven has been given to me in heaven and earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm always with you to the end of age. This is really simply what gospel agency is. As King Jesus has commanded and authorized, as we live life in him, under his grace, under his love, we're called to make and mature, multiply disciples everywhere whose lives are fully shaped by the gospel. That's pretty much it. In Jesus, in life in him, we make and mature, multiply disciples everywhere who's alive by a guy named Amid. You know, sometimes these things come alive when we tell a story. So let me tell you a story about a guy named Amid. Real story. He's an Indian. Uh, he's a merchant marine, so he made his career just being on those big vessels as like a, a hand. And uh, he was raised a Muslim, even though he was raised in the eastern part of India. And you may not know this, India has about 200 million Muslims. So there's more Muslims that live in India than any other country in the world. So he was one of those Muslims. And so he was like reading his Quran from an early age. He, he kind of learned Arabic. And so he's reading his Quran every evening. And then his captain, Captain Fernandez, came by and it's like, hey, what you reading? And Mead's like, I'm reading my Quran. He's like, do you understand it? He's like, not really. And then this captain just said, you're a fool, and just walks off. And poor Mead's just sitting there going, wait a minute. My captain has a point here. I've been reading my Quran over and over and over, but I don't understand what I'm reading because I can sort of like read Arabic, but I don't really understand Arabic. That's kind of weird. So as soon as he got back to port, you know, he found a Bengali Quran, a Quran in the Bengali language, and he just started reading it cover to cover. And he discovered something really interesting. He's like, okay, my Quran talks about Muhammad and my Quran talks about Jesus, which I wasn't expecting. And then so he started reading about Muhammad and he's like, uh, I'm not sure about this Muhammad guy, okay? But I know I'm supposed to respect him, so this is really confusing. But then he started reading about Jesus in the Quran, and he's like, wow, what an interesting figure. I want to know more. So then he's like trying to figure out how do I learn more about Jesus, and then someone said, you know, you can, you can get like these things called the Gospels, and it talks about Jesus. He's like, okay. So he found one in Bengali, and he started reading it cover to cover, and he discovered Jesus, it radically changed his life. He began to discover the grace of God, and it changed everything for him. He went on a mission, and he was like, oh my gosh, all my aunties and uncles and family and friends go to my mosque. They're part of this community, and none of them know Jesus. What am I going to do? So he started getting creative. He's like, I'm going to take people down the exact same journey I went down. So he went to every spiritual leader, of course, and for every family saying, hey, do you want to do a Quran study with me? And they're all like, as good Muslims, uh, of course, well, we'd love to do a Quran study with you. And he's like, okay, now we're going to, today one, we're going to just look at passages on Muhammad. And they're like, okay. And so they look at passages of Muhammad and they go, interesting. He's a little more colorful than I thought. I was like, I know, I know, but you know, Muhammad, we're not going to say anything negative. Okay. And it's like, okay, let's look at Jesus. And so then they're looking at Jesus in the Quran and they're like, whoa, what an interesting character. Like, I know, that's what I thought too. It's like, you want to explore Jesus a little bit more? And they're like, yeah, that sounds interesting. So, you know, you'd get them little copies of uh, a Bengali by Gospels, and then suddenly his friends started coming to Jesus. And the moment his friends and family started coming to Jesus, he immediately read Matthew 20, 18 through 20 to them so that they can join the mission with him, and they were all baptized. And so he started creating a process. He's like, okay, we're going to do Bible study every day. And then he decided, gosh, just like himself, we need to do two years of training after we come to faith. And he noticed that even though they stayed within kind of an Islamic paradigm, everyone's Islamic Quranic practices faded away. 
And these people had these robust lives with Jesus. They became very dynamic. And then they're like, how do we help everyone we know become followers of Jesus? So they created this intricate plan where they went to every imam they knew within their system and they would do the same study and suddenly thousands were coming to Christ. Uh, uh, there's a, a, a well-known missionologist who captured the story in his, one of his books called The House in the Wind of Islam. And the time of the publishing of this book, there had been 33,000 people who became followers of Jesus. 16,000 of them were baptized. And at the time of that writing, another 3,000 were expected to be baptized that January. Now, for some of us, it was like, you're like, okay, this Islamic insiders who are following Jesus feels a little dubious, feels a little suspicious. I don't know what to do with it. And so let's just take a step back from whether creating a valuation of what was going on there or even a blessing or endorsement of it, but just take a step back and go, what was going on? This is the gospel. Gospel discovery leads to gospel agency. Because of the gospel, Hamid and his friends and family did everything they could to make and mature and multiply disciples everywhere they knew so people's lives were wholly shaped by the Lord Jesus Christ. There was daily Bible reading, weekly Bible studies, creative outreach, two-year trainings for every believer, and they did everything around their kitchen tables. Friends, does that describe you and me? I remember when I read this, I remember just being cut to the core. I was like, you know, a little judgy, like, I don't know about this whole Islamic, Quranic thing, what's going on there? And then suddenly hit me, it's like, wait a minute. Do people in my local church read the Bible every day, go to a weekly Bible study, do creative outreach, do a two-year training program, and disciple people around kitchen tables? I don't think that describes just about any church in North America right now. Terrifying, isn't it? So, like, Matthew, 18, Matthew 20, 18 through 20 couldn't be more clear for us. It's beautiful. It's a commission. We're called to do it. It's obvious what we're supposed to do when you read it, and then when we look at our own practices, we're like, eh, but then when we start hearing about what God's doing and people like Amid around the world, we're like, whoa, yikes. So this is gospel agency. So why is it so rare for us? Okay, so I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian minister like Tim. So you can hold that against me or you can allot me for it. I don't know what you, what you want to do with it. I don't know what to do myself sometimes, okay? So anyways, one of the things we're guilty of in, in churches, awesome churches like the way here, is we can sometimes confuse cognitive orthodoxy over biblical orthodoxy. And I just used a big word. Orthodoxy is just like right thoughts. And so cognitive orthodoxy is we become consumers. We read, we get these big heads, and we confuse knowledge for transformation. It's what terrifies me sometimes about being in my denomination because we confuse knowledge for transformation. And so we can read all these big textbooks. They made us read this like little biology down, but not have transformation. I remember when I went to seminary, they made us read this like little booklet the first week we were there. It was written by this New Testament scholar named B.B. Warfield. And it was like a tract for seminary students. And I was like, you know, our, our professor was like, yeah, I read this. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Some dead dude. And so I'm like reading through it. And I stopped right in the middle of it like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I think this guy's Indian, even though he's not Indian. Because he basically, he basically said right in the middle of it, he was like, okay, when you're reading the Bible, when you're doing theological studies... You should be taking off your shoes because you're on holy ground and your studies should lead you to worship. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on with this B.B. Warfield guy, but he's dead on. 
When we're reading the Bible, when we're doing theology, it should be a worship experience. We're rediscovering God and his grace, and it's experienced deep within, and that's what biblical orthodoxy is. What we read transforms us in something we experience, and we're kicking off our shoes, and we're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. But sadly, not only do we confuse cognitive orthodoxy over biblical orthodoxy, we confuse cognitive orthodoxy over biblical orthopraxy. Okay, another big word. Orthopraxy is right actions, just right actions. It kind of reminds me of James 1.22. James said this, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Isn't it amazing? Like, I remember having this problem when I was a pastor of a church, you know, I had all these, like, I was in Chapel Hill, so I had professors and doctors and entrepreneurs and a lot of really smart people, like, kind of just like you all, in a room, right? And I felt like our, our church had this reputation for being just and cutting edge and stuff like that. But then I suddenly realized we just talked a mean game, but we didn't do anything. Because we understood so much and had such good views, we thought we were practicing things. But then once I started doing my homework, I'm like, hey, guys, I don't think we're doing anything. And that's a really big problem. They're like, why is it a big problem? And I read this verse, and everyone's like, yeah, that is a big problem. <laughs> what are we going to do? And so, so sometimes we confuse, no, not only are you supposed to excite, in our opinion, right thoughts as being okay when the Bible's actually saying, you know, not only are you supposed to experience it in your heart, you're supposed to practice it too. Oh, it gets worse. Not only do we confuse cognitive orthodoxy over biblical orthodoxy or orthopraxy, we confuse cognitive orthodoxy over biblical orthopathy. Sorry, it's the last big word. Okay, <laughs> right emotions, right emotions. Here, Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish I could... I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is one of, for me, one of the most beautiful and gut-wrenching verses in the Bible. Paul, as he's just reminiscing and rehearsing the beauty of the gospel, particularly in Romans chapter 8, which is like the most beautiful chapter in the Bible, where he's like, gosh, nothing can separate from the love of God and the Holy Spirit's inside of us doing all sorts of cool stuff. He's saying, oh my gosh, I would give all of that way if my friends and family and people could just discover Jesus. A very low-key way of him saying this. He's basically saying, I would go to hell if my people could know Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, in the heart of that, he's saying, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Friends, here's what's the scary part. When we're discovering Jesus again, fresh and new, when we're enjoying his rich love and grace and mercy, you know what happens in our hearts? We get just filled with sorrow over the people that don't know Jesus. Look, in North America, we hate to feel pain. In North America, we hate to feel anything too deeply. In North America, the last thing we want to do is feel sorrow all the time. But friends, when we're enjoying Jesus and drinking from his love, and we start looking at people, especially our friends and our family and our uncles and aunties that don't know Jesus, our heart is supposed to break for them. My parents still don't know Jesus. I'm supposed to cry about that. My sister and brother-in-law still don't know Jesus. I'm supposed to weep over that. Friends, all of us in this room have people we deeply care about that don't know Jesus. And it's hard to go there, isn't it? 
That's like the best place for us to go. But you see, when the gospel goes deep within us, it messes with our motivations and our emotions. It liberates us to feel deeply. It liberates us to feel anguish, and that's the place we're supposed to be because that's where Jesus lived in his earthly life. No one felt greater sorrow and greater pain for people than Jesus himself. And if the Holy Spirit's making us more like Jesus and the gospel's goal is to transform us to our elder brother in his image, that means we're going to have huge hearts that just break over the state of affairs with our fellow man. Friends, the gospel is supposed to be discovered and understood and experienced and practiced and deeply felt. And we often trade that in for an intellectual exercise. Friends, you know what's at stake? David Garrison, that missionologist I mentioned earlier, he calls it unintentional evangelism. He says the best evangelism is not us doing these weird projects. It's not us going around with a blowhorn going, hey, do you know Jesus? You know, It's not you just going up to complete strangers going, hey, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd be? That stuff's really weird and offensive. <laughs> the best way people discover Jesus is where you're just like, you're doing life. Wherever you live and work and play and you're just enjoying Jesus and rediscovering the gospel and it just kind of spills out of you. And so there's like joy in you and peace in you and the ability to handle strife and troubles. And so when your friends and coworkers and neighbors and your playmates all kind of bump into you, they're like, man, there's something cool going on in that person's life and they want to know more. Both Paul and Peter talk about to create and provoke, be ready to answer questions. Why? Because if you're living out the gospel, it's going to create and provoke questions in other people. And they're going to be like, dude, tell me why you can handle this trial the way you are handling it. Man, like, gosh, your kid has been a pain and you just have such grace for them. Why? Because I'm a pain to my heavenly father and he loves me. Friends, the world has changed around kitchen tables. The Roman Empire is won over by hospitality. Hospitality, Hundreds of books have been written on that. Unintentional evangelism is just a result of us enjoying the gospel. And friends, our neighbors are literally dying for us to rediscover the gospel. So we know what gospel agency is. We've explored a little bit about why it's so rare. So how do we unlock it? How do we unlock the gospel? So what happened to those 12 disciples that heard the Great Commission? So like the, the context of Matthew 28, this is right before Jesus ascended. I mean, that would have been really cool to be there and just watch him like float into the sky, right? Before he did that, he said this, and then he took off. Now what happened to those 12 dudes and their friends there around them? They all died except for John. I mean, John, like he got to be the old guy writing letters from you know, exile, but the rest of them, if I told you how each of them died, it'd be like a horror movie. It'd be terrifying. You know, there's a reason they never made like a movie on the, the apostles, right? Because it'd be like, that one got stoned, that one got burned alive, that guy went hung upside down. You're like, ah, <laughs> you know, it's like it terrify the masses, right? But what did they do? They started the coolest, grittiest house church movement that literally changed the world. So what empowered them to do this? What empowered them is they got to see the resurrected Jesus with the holes, right? Redeemed holes, right? They got to experience the resurrected Jesus who spent 40 days reminding them like, hey, Peter, we're gonna have this weird exercise, right? So you know that I really have forgiven you. Hey, Dad and Thomas, let's eat. Why don't you 
that he's really real. He did whatever he could for every disciple to remind them that he loves them, that he's forgiven them. Yeah, I know you rejected me, but I'm never going to reject you. And so as they experienced his love and grace, they were commanded, and remember, I'm always with you to the end of the age. They, were, <laughs> they got the clue. The clue is like, I got to constantly re-remember the gospel. And as I rediscover the gospel each and every day, it's going to push me out. That power and presence of God's going to give me everything that I need. Friends, are you remembering the gospel? <laughs> this is the gospel. That right now you're the object of God's love. You're actually drowning in the volume of God's love right now. The gospel is that Jesus on that cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. That was the first time he ever had any separation with his heavenly father. But he sat on the cross and absorbed the wrath of God to satisfy that wrath of God so that he would be fully satisfied for us for the rest of eternity. You know what the gospel is? God has invaded your life by the Holy Spirit and has given you every spiritual gift and blessing. And the Holy Spirit's going to hold on to you for the rest of your life. You know what the gospel is? He started your faith, he gave you your faith, and he's going to hold on to you and perfect your faith so that one day you're going to be with him in glory. You know what the gospel is? One day you're going to be at the coolest supper of all time. Jesus the bridegroom is going to have a banqueting table that's just going to be ridiculously long. All his billions of people that know him, his body, his bride are going to be at that banquet table. You're going to enjoy the greatest of feasts and then our bridegroom, our Lord, our Savior, our friends are going to stand up and over us and delight in us and sing over us and shower us with love and grace. Friends, it's to the degree we drink from that gospel, enjoy it, rediscover it, preach it to our hearts, preach it to each other, sing about it, draw about it, listen to it on podcasts, do whatever we can to like cram that reality back into our hearts, to, to reboot up our hard drive and have that become technicolor. Remember that gospel is compelled into the world. Friends, to the degree we remember that gospel, it changes everything for us. But here's what's scary. The inverse is true as well. The lack of gospel agency in us might mean we're not actually presently discovering the gospel. Where are you today? You know, we're always in different places every week, right? But where are you today? Is the gospel and its discovery in your life propelling you to gospel agency? Or is there a lack of gospel agency in your life which may be promoting you to rediscover the gospel? Here's the good news in all this. Your standing in Jesus doesn't change one way or the other. You're still the object of his love. <laughs> uh, your lack of faithfulness in that area or rediscovery of the gospel doesn't impact the way Jesus looks at you, which is amazing good news, right? So when we're in the height of our hypocrisy with our Christian faith, you know what God's doing towards us? I love you and it's going to be okay. So friends, we don't have to do anything to re-earn God's love. What he's inviting us to do is like, hey, come back home. Rediscover the beauty of what I have for you so you can be thoroughly raptured by it and pushed out. A few things to consider as we close up here. This may be time for some of you to discover or rediscover the gospel and what it means to vitally enjoy Jesus. Friends, are you enjoying Jesus right now? Are you enjoying Jesus? Not going through the motions, not showing up to an awesome church like this, as great as this is, but day in, day out, when no one else is around, do you know how to enjoy Jesus? 
in your prayer life, in your friendships, in the word, in silence. You know, this is going to sound really cheesy, but like the way I do it is I listen to like cheesy Christian music and take long walks. Those songs get me every time, you know? Some of the Hillsong ones where they just say the same word like over and over and over. Like, this is it, this is it. Be man. I'm just like, yes! You know, and I'm crying, and I'm like, this is it, this is it. But you know, like, that probably won't work next week, but like, whatever it takes for you to rediscover the gospel, it really, really matters. Because it's the power for everything we do. So friends, if you're not rediscovering the gospel or discovering the gospel, it's time to rediscover it. And the best place to rediscover is around the kitchen table. Friends, the second thing is we have to discover or rediscover the kitchen table. That's the best place to rediscover the gospel. It's the best place to talk with each other about the gospel. It's the best place to introduce other people to the gospel. Kitchen tables are an amazing place to be transformed by the gospel, which in the third thing would allow us to discover and rediscover unintentional evangelism. Because friends, if we're enjoying the gospel with each other, it's just going to spill out and we're going to suddenly see other people enjoying the gospel with us. It's that simple, and we don't need to make it any more complex. Let me end with a story of me being around a kitchen table. So when I was a student at Carolina, I became a Christian. I was raised in a devout Hindu family. I mean, when I say devout, my father knew Sanskrit and would fill in for the priest, even though he was the head professor of biostatistics. My mom had a shrine room. We had uh, Hindu religious, religious literature all over our house. So somehow... God decided to save me through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes when I played football. I'm not a D1 athlete, as you can tell, but, you know, I was good enough to play in my high school football team. And so as I discovered Jesus, you know, I had a very radical conversion, but by the time I got to college, I was trying to find my identity in everything. Like, okay, I'll be like in four different Christian groups. You know, I'll serve as the youth guy at my church. I did everything I could, and I was starting to burn out. Like, I knew I loved Jesus, but it just wasn't quite working. And I had this... College pastor, his name was Jonathan Inman. Um, he actually dressed like this. I'm just following his footsteps. So anyways, he was hanging out with me, and he was just like, I was always coming to his house, and he'd feed me like cereal or something around his kitchen table, and we'd hang out, and then he was realizing I just wasn't enjoying the grace of God. And so he got John Calvin's, and he puts it in front of me, you know, blowing off dust, you know, it's like this big tome, looks like an encyclopedia. And he puts in front of me and just kind of goes to the chapter in justification and just slides in front of me. He says, Rio, I want you to read this chapter. And I was like incredulous. I was like, I'm not going to read that encyclopedia. Who's this John Calvin guy? This looks so boring. I want something vivid and life-giving. This is like some dead white dude from the 1500s. I'm not going to read it. And he's like, no, Rue, you got to read it. It's like, do I, do I mean anything to you, Rue? I was like, yes, you do. He's like, read it for me. I was like, okay. So, you know, I put a bookmark in there and I was like, walk back to my dorm room and threw it on my desk, and then that night I was like, okay, I'll read it. So I got the book, I opened it up, and I started reading the chapter in justification. And then I couldn't put it down. That's what God used. John Calvin, of all people. You know, I'm reading one page after another going, oh my gosh, is this really true? I can't escape God's love? Jesus really has a hold of me? I'm actually hidden in him? He's already forgiven me all my past, present, future sins? Uh, I'm righteous, meaning I'm now beautiful and breathtaking to God. Like I couldn't, every page, I was like, I started reading past the justification chapter to adoption. And I'm like, I'm really a child? This is amazing. Uh, the, the gospel, probably the first time, started making sense to me. It's like the gospel is actually bigger than me. 
Like God's love and grace is way more bigger than even my unfaithfulness. Like no matter how much I screw this up, he won't let go and he's going to win and he's going to change me and that's just what he does. And as I started discovering that, that radically changed my life. Friends, where I learned that day is it's not a one-time thing. My friend Jonathan was like, okay, great. I'm glad you got excited about that. This is what we do every day. We warm ourselves by the heat of the gospel until it explodes in our heart. Because when that happens, everything else in the Christian life is downhill. And friends, when the gospel is exploding in your heart, you're just going to give it away. Just to explore. Father, thank you for this opportunity just to explore. Just to explore a little bit. Not what you just called us to, but the power you've given us to live for you. And so, Father, we're grateful that you instructed the disciples to remember your power and presence. And we beg you to help us in faith every day to remember your gospel, that it might explode in our hearts and that you might lead us into our city, into our community, into our friendships, that others might discover you, Lord Jesus. Father, we're grateful that one day we're going to be at that marriage supper of the Lamb and enjoy the grace of feasts and perfect glory. And we beg you, Lord Jesus, we are humbly begging you that you would help us to love our uncles and aunties and friends and cousins and family members, that they would see you in us and that your gospel would break our hearts for them and, and use us, please, Lord Jesus, to help them to discover your beauty, grace, and love. We pray this in your blessed name because we want them at that supper. Amen.